It reminds me of David Gardner, who's the, one of the co-founders of The Motley Fool. And many moons ago, he crafted a set of investing rules that have played out with unbelievable success. And specifically, he was the one who brought to my attention that past price appreciation is a good thing. But he also said that you should buy a stock when mainstream financial media is calling it overvalued, which is really anti-intuitive. When we look the last five years, up until today, there's been 41 all-time highs for the S&P 500. If we widen our, our view a little bit more to 10 years, there's been 86 all-time highs. And over 20 years, there's been 240 all-time highs reached by the S&P 500. Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike, and joining me today's episode, we have My Wall Street's chief investor, Emmett Savage. Emmett famously compounded his personal portfolio by 21% on average over 20 years to create general wealth for himself and his family. He didn't do this through complicated financial products, nor does he have years of experience in the corporate finance industry. Instead, he distilled a few simple principles and a commitment to long-term investing that has changed his life. We've distilled this process into an easy beginner's course, so if you or someone you know is starting out as an investor, you can sign up today for free at learntoinvest.today to begin your journey to financial prosperity. As always, we'll include a link in the show notes. Today's podcast is brought to you by Vodafone Business. Now, if you're like us here on my Wall Street, you know that running a business is difficult. There are countless things to think about, and many often seem to get ignored or completely forgotten about. That's where Vodafone Business can help. They've crafted a suite of tools and supports to boost your business's operations, and the best part is it's free for everyone. From cybersecurity to harnessing the power of AI, building a website and improving how your teams work remotely, Vodafone Business will help you address the often overlooked but crucial elements for your business's success. To get started today, check out their one-to-one VHub digital support and advice service. You'll find everything you need right there. Find the link in our show notes or simply just Google Vodafone VHub for more details. Now let's dive into this week's episode. Emmett, how are we doing? Well, I would usually ask how are we doing, but I kind of know how you're doing. You're feeling a bit poorly today. Ah, uh, yeah, you know, it goes with the territory. You hit, you know, your late 40s and things come at you a little bit quicker. But uh, yeah, just grand. Nothing, nothing too serious. Yeah. But uh, I'll be speaking quietly on today's uh, podcast, I'm sure, to the collective relief of our audience. Yeah, just in case there's any coughing and spluttering, we'll, we'll give a trigger warning now. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. All right. I wanted to start this podcast off with a very strange tone um you know bill ackman don't you yeah of yeah. course so this famous head fund manager one of the probably most famous head foot hedge fund managers out there at the minute anyways uh he's the head of pershing square holdings they have a couple of funds famously got a lot of stick uh do you remember around the covid the start of covid and he went on cnbc and he said, yeah. he said the world was going to end and it was Revelations book one and all this. And then it turns out that he was shorting the market at the know. same time. Oh, no, I didn't. It rings a bell. I know he's been busy now kind of goading and poking at, uh, is it Harvard University yeah. or all the big colleges about there? I don't know if he's claiming they're anti-Semitic or what's he saying, but I, I, I kind of ignore him. What's he up to these days? Well, like every billionaire, it seems he's spending all his time on Twitter. Um seems to be the done thing amongst the billionaire class but i brought him up because the new yorker did a big expose piece on him and i don't know it's it's really interesting reading because he sounds like a bit of a lunatic uh he keeps apparently posting memes of himself as russell crowe from gladiator Uh, (laughs) he's described he's described business insider as the barbarians at the gate so basically i know i'm not going to give the full story but this big long thing with harvard came out and he started going after the former president of, the, uh, of Harvard, 
Um, yeah. Uh, he wanted her out and then he found out some like kind of plagiarism stuff and then Business Insider published stuff about his wife. And now he wants to basically take on plagiarism for every person that's ever touched Business Insider. But sorry, that's not why I brought him up. I brought him up because of the most yeah. uh, deranged kind of stuff I've ever heard. But it's funny, especially considering your name. So basically, Bill Ackman has this view that people become their names. So he says, oh, the quote is, the quote is, I met people named Ham- Hamburger that own McDonald's franchises. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so he's, talking, he's talking to this writer, this interviewer from uh, this interviewer from the New Yorker, whose name is Reeves, uh, but Bill Ackman probably chooses to mishear him on purpose and call him Reed. And he said, "Oh, Reed, like right writer, you're a writer." And he finished it with, Come on. he finished it with, "So my name is Ackman. It's like activist man." Oh please, no! He's obviously just doing an Elon Musk. He's doing this to shine a spotlight on himself and say, hey, look, I'm eccentric. I've got these <laughs> little strange quirks and I'm anti one of the gang. Or does he actually believe it? I don't know, but I wanted to bring it up because your second name is obviously Savage. And I don't know yeah. if this is true, if, oh, if the stars are aligning, how do, you, how do you think it's going to play out for you? Like traditionally, Savage was used to describe a person that was primitive or uncivilized or barbaric, but I consider that offensive and culturally outdated, Mike, and I am offended. But nowadays, especially where you live in Galway, or at least where you hail from, uh, in your neck of the woods, it's used admiringly Mm -hmm. to refer to someone who's really good at something and displays remarkable resilience. So I'll take that one and ignore the original meaning. So yeah, Emmett Savage. Oh, he's a savage man. Yes, I'm happy with that. <laughs> right, <good stuff. laughs> Actually, they finished off the article, which I thought was very good as well. Basically, Pershing Square are about to launch a new fund. Uh, Matt Levine wrote about this. Um, oh. But it's basically aimed more at retail investors than the institutional investors, which would typically invest in hedge funds. Um, so it's going to be like yeah. accessible through your broker. And he's accumulated about 400,000 new Twitter followers through all this. So it could be kind of a long game here of, you know, these are 400,000 potential customers that are posting posting gladiator memes about me. But uh, yeah, Yeah. I just, I thought the, I thought the Ackman activist man was the highlight. I I think he's the CEO of um, the Howard Hughes Corporation. He might. Does that ring a bell with you? Might be Jesus. I don't know. Uh, probably because yeah, I think Pershing Square Capital. They either are the majority shareholder, or he is the was once or is currently the CEO of Howard Hughes, which I suppose kind of is a full circle because, like Howard Hughes himself, the aviator was a little bit uh, quirky. A little he was, bit, of course, a great innovator. Yeah, oh, he was barking mad, <laughs> but uh, it's kind of suddenly makes all make sense. So there you go. The circle of life has come back if he is the CEO is. of Howard Hughes. But yeah, I have I have tuned him out because he has said enough things that you just realize are very self-serving and an awful lot that I believe to be completely barking mad. Yeah, I just don't get how all these billionaires have so much time to go on Twitter. But Anyways, um, so I wanted to kick off the show, the normal show, part of the Bill Ackman stuff, by just talking about the current market and the state it's in. So it's basically hitting all-time highs after going through, it went through two bar, two bear markets in the past four years, which is twice the usual pace, basically, of when you would see a bear market. But uh, mm. Ben Carson was writing about this, I always quote Ben Carson, um, 
there's this interesting anomaly, uh, and it seems very counterintuitive, is from research from JP Morgan, and they found that if you invested in the S&P 500 on any given day since 1988, your average return a year later would have been 12%. However, if you invested on days where the S&P 500 closed at an all-time high, your average return would have been nearly 15%. So that it's, it extrapolates further out, three years is uh, 39% to 50%. Five years, it kind of gets a bit closer again at 71 and 79. So it, it has less of a long-term effect, we'll say. But as someone who's been through so much market turmoil in your career as an investor, what are your thoughts on investing at all-time highs? Does it give you pause as a stock picker? Well, that information is useful for sure. Like, especially if you're an index investor, it really is useful information. And I'm not an index investor. Um, and there's a lot of virtues to being just an index investor. It takes away an awful lot of the variables. <laughs> not a lot um, of stress too, I imagine. And a lot of the stress, but a lot of the enjoyment depends on what you're what you're after. But what, what we're trying, if you're trying to codify what you just said into a system. You can look at the data and in the last 12 months, as of today, which is Valentine's Day, February 14, 2024, there's been three all-time highs in the S&P 500, with the most recent one being January 29th. When we look the last five years, up until today, there's been 41 all-time highs for the S&P 500. If we widen our, our view a little bit more to 10 years, there's been 86 all-time highs and over 20 years, uh, there's been 240 all-time highs reached by the S&P 500. So if we were to take uh, the last data point, uh, which is 240 highs over 20 years, that's 240 months. That's a very clear average of about one high per month. But as we know, it's anything but spaced out evenly. You could get five new all-time highs in a week and none for a year. Uh, but to my point, you could put an equal amount of cash aside per month. And when you see a new time all-time high, put it into the S&P 500, everything you've saved up and start all over again. Start saving till you hear the next all-time high. But it, it doesn't it, But it does give me pause. It certainly challenges logic that buying anything at an all-time high is bad. In fact, past price appreciation is always a good thing and has been proven a million times across life and nature you know the strong get stronger and all that stuff so i do think uh that if or if the question is uh does it give me pause as a stock investor or a stock picker it doesn't it allows me to i suppose get confident in businesses that have had had a run recently mm. I think I fall into, I don't know, I'm sure it's called some sort of fallacy or something, but I have an awful mm. aversion to looking at a stock or, or an industry specifically, maybe semiconductors is a good example yeah. now, which we're going to get into a bit later. Um, yeah. But I see like a run up that NVIDIA has had and that would really put me yeah. off. Yeah. I, I, I'm with you, Mike. I mean, I, I have to say, I think of all the investing biases, uh, the one that I, that really drags down on me the most is when you described and it gets a little trickier when you bring it to a single point and you discuss one name as you just did nvidia and it reminds me of david gardner who's the one of the co-founders of the motley fool and many moons ago he crafted a set of investing rules i i'm going to say probably 30 plus years ago that have played out with unbelievable success and specifically he was the one who brought to my attention that past price appreciation is a good thing um but he also said 
that you should buy a stock when mainstream financial media is calling it overvalued, which is really mm. anti-intuitive. If you read an article, you, you buy Fortune magazine and this person who Fortune has screened and said, yes, this person is an expert and they've gone off and they've looked at Acme Bricks and they're saying, Acme Bricks is at an all-time high. It's preposterously overvalued. Well, what that says to me is I'm not going to buy it. But what it said to David Gardner, or rather what he said about his rule book in, uh, back when he wrote it was that that's a positive sign. And that's pretty incredible, really. Um, but I suppose when you're looking at a business that has grown 10x or 50x or even more, I can't even remember what NVIDIA has grown, at least 100x, um, you know, it means that you it means there could be more room to run. Um, and your gut says it's over. But funnily, it rarely actually is over. And that's the, I suppose, the the anchor that we really have to try and lift. Yeah. And I, that feeds into my point, I think, is well, mm. the perhaps the most salient point from all that research is that just if you picked a random day to invest in the stock market, on average, one year later, your investment's going to be up 12%. Three years later, it's going to be up 39%. And five years later, it's going to be up 71%. It, it, is this... Yeah. Is it, and it kind of feeds into the, what you're saying as well. Is it just a lesson to keep the head down and plow on, you know, irrelevant of the wider macro conditions, especially if you're working yeah. with a 10, 20, or even 30 year time horizon? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's only a handful of variables for a long term investor. On the buy side, they are like, what stock should I buy? When should I buy it? Uh, should I buy more? And when should I buy more? I think that's probably the only four buy side questions you can ask. And obviously the same questions can be applied to the sell side, but sticking to your question, when you look at those variables, timing forms a very large part of that question set and therefore one psyche. So the bottom line is remove it, invest often and at set intervals. Apart from moving closer to codifying your approach, you can do so in the knowledge that over the long term, it's just as good. And you mentioned Ben Carlson, and I'm glad you did so because he studied this effect and written about it over and over and over again. For example, in a discussion on the effectiveness of market timing strategies based on valuation indicators like CAPE ratio, he highlighted research that proved valuation-based market timing has not consistently added value. He always asserts that while while valuations can help set expectations, they're not reliable tools for market timing. In fact, all of Carson's writings convey this consistent theme that the difficulty of market timing and the importance of maintaining a long-term investment perspective. So the way you ask that question is absolutely spot on. As investors who go at this pursuit with a 10, 20 or 30 year time horizon, this is uh, you, you remove the, the when should I buy or when should I add more. You find quality businesses, you research, you get on top of their story and you buy them at regular intervals or as regularly as possible. And I'm not saying that you can't have an edge by being a good market timer. Of course you can. If you had a crystal ball, yes, if you've managed to find a time, a way of timing the market in a specific manner, of course you can have an edge. But when you look at some of the greatest investing minds and thinkers, and I count Ben Carlson amongst them and the research that they've done, uh, it says that, look, you're better off just going a little often, add a little often. Such a simple rule. It sounds like it's been designed for a child, but very often uh, the best solution is the simplest. Isn't that right? Is that Occam's razor? Yeah, they're when you hear who's think horse, not zebra. 
Yeah, yes, exactly. So, yeah, so I, 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 yeah, basic bottom line, I think uh, when you look at this, uh, the buy side set of questions, you can grossly simplify them by just saying, I'm going to buy, uh, I'm going to invest a little often. Yeah. And as individual investors and in retail, you know, personal investors, we don't have to answer to anyone. Yeah. You know, that's we right. We can hold and just sit and take advantage of the time horizon compared to the institutional investors. And this is what Morgan Housel talks about a lot. Don't compare yourself to someone else playing a different game. Do you know? And this this yeah, comes in yeah, this right. comes into play a lot around times of yeah. FOMO. The crypto I was feeling this over the crypto craze when I hear people making fortunes yeah. selling ass coin or whatever it is. Uh, like <laughs> my, my friend, my friend, my friend had a great like I, I think it was a, a fable or a moral come out of all of it. He's like. Yeah, I made some money, I lost some money, but I was also investing in Ascoin, so I really couldn't <laughs> I really couldn't blame anyone but myself. Please don't tell me there is such oh, a thing. There's, but anyway. there's that and worse. Before we, oh, before we get into the, the, uh, the awful names for some cryptocurrencies, um, I just want to bring it to our competition, not our competition, Vodafone Business competition. So it's called bring your business to the big screen. So Vodafone business are obviously big partners with the Irish rugby team and they're giving their small business customers an exclusive opportunity to be featured on the LED screens in the Aviva stadium during the Ireland versus Scotland match on 16th of March. Just to let everyone know, I don't know if it's worth entering my wall street have just put in a thousand separate ballots, um, which we will not fix the raffle. Don't worry. This competition includes tickets for you to come along and enjoy the match as well. So if you're a business owner or know someone who would love this opportunity, the link to enter is in the show notes and entries close on the 23rd of February. Do you think we're going to win, Emmett? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to get on the LED screen by playing rugby. <laughs> so uh, the only way I can, get, I can get on that LED screen is by going in and talking to Vodafone. Isn't that what I always say? Go into your local cashier at your Vodafone shop and wreck his head. And say I wound up on that LED screen. Nothing's going to stop me, and then they're just going to send me to the link in our show notes. So just do it. <laughs> okay. Get the middle bit. Right, Mike. So I'm going to take the I'm going to take the microphone for a while because you always have to question, ask, or seat. And I just thought I want to give it a shot. You know, like it's the Graham Norton show. Who's the biggest show? The biggest star in the Graham Norton show is Graham Norton. Um, because yeah, you know, like you know, every weekend he's the one that you know brings it together, and I kind of got a little bit of question askers jealousy. You're our Graham Norton, and that's just not fair. So I want to give it a shot, <laughs> okay, see if I can good. pull it off. So I, I, of all the engaging subjects, I'm not going to talk about like the new Avengers movie, like Graham Norton would, but I'm going to talk about Arm, the chip designer Arm, and they're having a week to remember with the stock doubling in the space of three days after last week's earning report, which is just a face melter. You just don't see that too often. So let's, before we dive in, can you just tell me about Arm? Who are they? What's going on over there? Yeah, so Arm has a very interesting recent history. It's this. It's a British chip designer and it powers essentially every mm. smartphone in the world. It builds these CPUs that smartphones run on. Um, our old friend Masayoshi-san, who I have a few tidbits of later uh, from SoftBank fame, so he bought it in 2016 and took a private for 32 billion. Then a few years back, NVIDIA tried to acquire it in, uh, I think it was 2020, but it got blocked due to regulatory issues, I think in the UK. And so, you know, anything NVIDIA touches turns to gold and cash yeah. and green arrows. Um, so yeah. it's not surprising to see ARM making these kind of moves. But um, instead of selling it 
after it fell through. SoftBank took it public back in September. Um, and it's it's one of these really future relevant businesses. It has, guess its gross margin, actually. This is outrageous. Um, I'm going to guess 86%. 96%. Come on. <laughs> So this is that's not even possible. This is just put out whatever price you want on it and we'll sell it kind of product. Um, but in the last week is where it really kicked off in terms of, I suppose, from an investor's investors perspective anyways. Uh, so we talked about last week's earnings report and it basically just threw it into the middle of the, the AI hype cycle, I guess. Um, but if you yeah. go through it. So we said the stock doubled in three days um, at, at yeah. about a $75 billion valuation that took it up to 150 at one point. Wow. So it's not like, it, wow. it's, not, it's not a penny stock by any means, but it moves like one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what mm-hmm. it's done today. I haven't been able to check. But the results kind of had me questioning a few things. So the, the, I'll just give you yeah. the top line numbers that made yeah. $75 billion in market cap in the space of three days. So revenue grew 14% year over year to $842 million. Okay. 14, one four. One four. Um, well, that's normal. That's quality growth. It's not outstanding. I think we like to see 20% or more, but 14% we're happy with. Okay, keep going. Yeah. Uh, operating and net income were both cut in half, $234 million and $87 million respectively. And oh non-GAAP free cash flow, which is just cash flow from yeah. operating activities, came in at 250 million, 257 million, I think was the exact number. So this doesn't really tell me a story of a $150 billion no. company. Um, I think yeah. at the time, happened? at the time it was about 50 times sales and about 1500 times earnings. So it doesn't exactly jump off the page. Um, what metric have they promised the world? Exactly. Then? What's special about so it? So this is from the horse's mouth here. So. Arms licensing yeah. revenue supported by increased demand for new technology driven by all things AI. From the most complex AI cloud applications to the smallest edge devices, AI on ARM is everywhere. ARM's performance and power-efficient CPU platform is used by more and more software designers, making it easier for OAMs to adopt, adopt ARM technology, which generates further demand from ARM-based chips. Uh, they would go on and on basically talking about AI. Uh, and it ends mm-hmm. with as does everybody as does everyone as we talked about Sherwin Williams of course yeah. but I think this might be a bit more <laughs> applicable than a paint company yeah. but yeah. Um, yeah. it finishes off basically saying with so many applications moving to AI we expect this demand to accelerate so basically ARM and its management have said look we're seeing what's happening with you know Nvidia with super microconductors with everything else and it's like we are in this business as well. Don't forget about us. Mm. And it kind of reminded people, all right, wait a minute. This is part of the AI hype. We haven't talked about this business. It's a great business. It's got 96% gross margins and it's incredibly applicable to the AI market right now. So that's why we saw such volatile moves. But there is a bit more at play here. Um, which we want to get into now. Yeah, tell me. So, like, tell, so, like, the, this, this, what could be causing this wild volatility? I mean, I, I, I disappeared off there as you're chatting, looking at its trends and its graph, and and you really, you had, this is a very good example of why you have to listen to conference go and figure out what the holy heck is happening. Exactly. Yeah, because that's what we said. Like the numbers alone don't tell the story, but um, no. there is a reason why it moved up as it did. And it wasn't just based on that great little quote about AI. So basically yeah. SoftBank listed Arm in September, we talked about that, but it still holds about 90% stake in the business. 
Um, yeah. So actually SoftBank shares are up about 30% this week as well based on this. But because so little of the float is actually being traded, so only I think it's about only 9% uh, of shares are available. Right. It means that any moves are amplified, hence why it's been uh -huh. so incredibly volatile. But here's the kicker. The lockup restrictions from the IPO uh, are set to expire yeah. in early March, meaning those early investors can ah. cash out on like something. I think it's right. almost a 200% gain in the space of six months. So it also means, uh, yeah. That, oof, ouch. Exactly. You're going to see an exodus. There will be an exodus and invariably that share price will fall back to where it came from. Yeah, 100%. So this is almost like a kind of PSA warning being like, if you see this company, don't really touch it for the next month because there's going to be an absolute flood of new motivated sellers coming in, seeing some very easy gains. And as we know, as the stock market works, if there's more sellers than buyers, that's when the stock goes down. So I would expect a very precipitous fall uh, in the coming yeah. weeks for ARM. And um, yeah, just a, just a, so with, without try landing you in, sorry, Mike, but without landing you in it now, what's the short interest like? Because you know, based on what you said, the lot, we we are not options traders here. We don't advocate people get into it, but this is a case where. True conversation, you and I believe there's a fairly good catalyst for downward pressure on the stock. So shorting it would sound to me like a logical move for a lot of short traders. Yes, but also any short traders that were in the stock over the last week got absolutely burned when it crushed uh, when, when it doubled in the space of three days. Oh, very interesting. I'm actually looking at the options chain now. I won't dive into it because as much as my graphs make for exciting <laughs> an exciting show, describing the option chain would just bring it to a whole new level of bleak banality. Yeah, Blueburn, Blue, Bloomberg is saying it's about 6%. Is that correct? 6% sounds about right based on what I'm looking at. But sure, look, let's not do this live. People love our show for just... <laughs> The organic nature of it all. But that is really good. So tell me over. So imagine you could only buy ARM today and then it's closed for the rest of your days. You can never buy it again. But the shares you buy today will be given to Junior Michael Mahoney as of not yet born on uh, her or his 30th birthday. Would you buy shares in ARM? No, not a. Uh... I wouldn't recommend buying shares. I know we talked about valuation. It becomes less important than time horizons. You mean at all or just an arm? <laughs> <laughs> Never. They don't deserve anything. <laughs> no, wouldn't buy, no, no, wouldn't buy shares. Not <laughs> well, cut your white shot. No, I'm just... I, I'm, okay, well, I'm that's just fascinating. Kind of very terrified of how fast that moves and kind of the tinfoil hatty, but it seems more mm. sinister. Actors are at play with these kind of moves. Mm. Well, a 9% float, it's funny, it's a, it's a very good point and it's an interesting debate because I don't often look at how big is the float or what percentage of the shares are out there in the stock exchange's control or ecosystem, if you will. And that's a very good case study that when it's such a, like it's a single digit number that the, the news will pressure pressure that stock up or down. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it's so much easier to manipulate then. Um but uh, before we move on, I've got an elevator pitch for you. I just wanted to... Oh, I know. I just want to give you a few stats on uh, Masayoshi-san, uh, um, the CEO, chief investor of SoftBank, who is one of the more interesting investing characters you'll come across. Um, oh, yeah. So His PowerPoints are... His PowerPoints are... Our listeners. Google his PowerPoints. They are... <laughs> his PowerPoints. I wouldn't even say beauty. It's just... 
bizarre. Yeah, uh, alternate reality maybe. But um, yeah. So he's this kind of famous tech investor, but he's probably the most bullish. Would that be correct? In like, if he sees an idea, he backs it and backs it heavily. So I just want to give you a few stats yeah. over like the last twenty years about just how much money has he lost and yeah. won and gone through his hands is nuts. So in the mid nineties, he invested one point seven billion into 100 internet firms, including a 30% stake in Yahoo for 100 million. In 2000, he was worth 78 billion at the peak of the dot-com bubble. So that's 24 years ago, he's worth nearly 80 billion. He was the richest person in the world, but only for three days. Uh, the bubble burst and he lost 99% <laughs> of his wealth. He also, uh, in 2000, put 20 million into Alibaba for a 34% stake. He sold this uh, pretty much entirely by 2023 and made about 72 billion. So turning 20 million into 72 billion isn't a bad turn. But uh, no. what he did with that money, he's got something. What he did with that money, he lost 14 billion of it on WeWork. Imagine losing 14 billion in yeah. one investment. I lost 14 billion on Upstart <laughs> after the report last night. It feels like it, uh, God. Oh, anyway. He, yeah, but I, I know how he feels, but in my own little yeah, world. He once owned 5% of NVIDIA. He sold it all for $3.6 billion in 2019. That stake would be worth yeah. $90 billion now. Uh, he bought, oh. and then this is Arm Holdings, he bought it for $32 billion in 2016. And it's sitting at about $130, 140000000000 now. So not a bad return there. Mm -hmm. um, he's worth, yeah. I think, overall about $15 billion at the minute. But apparently that's a very volatile figure, Mas Masayashi-san's net worth. But just one of those really interesting characters. And I don't know, the fella obviously doesn't mind about losing money since he's lost so much and gained it back. But, you know, it's interesting when you look at these billionaires, whether we're talking about Masayashi, Washiwashi, or uh, we're talking about Bill Ackman, there, there comes a, a point where um, when enough is enough, you're free to do what you want. And I think it was Bill Gates said that uh, there comes a point where after you've made your first well, fortune, let's say a billion dollars, you've taken all the money worries out of yours and the people you care for's life, you've given some back, You've bought all the toys that you can possibly consume. And I think billionaires usually end up with too many toys. And uh, he said, at the end of the day, you're standing in line and you're going to get the exact same burger mm. as the guy behind you. And, you know, whatever way he phrased it, there, we're, whether we're talking about our friend here in SoftBank or whether we're talking about Bill Ackman or whatever, you kind of see behavior where they're basically the, the, the value of money uh, takes a different meaning or the ability to take risk with money has a different edge. And I think that's really what we're seeing there because as you described his progress from pretty well off to extremely wealthy. It was one of that story where he just did what he wanted after a certain point in time and continues to do so. Yeah, uh, it's appropriate actually that you're talking about billionaires and their toys uh, for this elevator pitch. Yeah. Um, so, so go hit me. What have we got? All right. I'm, I'm sure as Graham Norton, I was meant to say to you, Mike, have you got an elevator? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you're, you're helping Graham. That's not allowed. Yeah. Mike, have you got an elevator pick, pitch this I week? do. I do have it. I do. Or Graham, whichever oh, you'd like to be called. Oh, interesting. Tell me about it. Uh, so I'm going to start <laughs> with a question. When you hear luxury, when we're talking about stocks, mm. what companies come to mind? 
LVMH, Ferrari, uh, Aston Martin, blah, blah, blah. LVMH is the kingpin. Okay, well, I'm kind of disappointed you said Ferrari straight away because that's the pitch. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I find it interesting when you put it alongside jewelry companies or watch companies or clothing or whatever, as Ferrari does stick out a small bit, but it is mm. that one of the preeminent luxury stocks on the market right now. Yeah, uh, it is. And, and and it's weird to say that it's competitors or maybe not competitors per se, but like comparables aren't Mercedes or Tesla, but Hermes and LVMH. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's this strategy and this luxury approach that's proven to be an incredible investment. Uh, IPO back in 2015, I think it's up about sevenfold since. So not a bad return if you can get it. Um, yeah. And I lampooned that IPO. Really? Yes, I did. I went on this very show and kind of guffawed at the fact that the CEO was and he was kind of delighted with the new stitching on their leather work and they'd sold four more cars than planned in the last quarter. I just thought it was all very Italian and very eccentric and lovely, but I didn't think it was going to make a great investment. But as you're going to explain, I was wrong (laughs) and I'm sure it's going to get better. But it is. It's funny that like he's talking about stitching and stuff because that's what comes down to with luxury companies. Uh, it's all about yeah, that's brand right. conservation and scarcity. If everyone owned a Rolex, then a Rolex wouldn't be worth 50K. The fact that they're limited yeah. supply adds to scarcity, makes them coveted, and that means Rolex can charge whatever they want. Do you know what I mean? It's not Ferrari's goal to sell that's right. 15,000 cars a year, but it's to be this aspirational almost, not even status symbol. I think the, the quote here from Enzo Ferrari describes it as a dream. It's actually really... I, I would put it as a brand tagline. I think it's brilliant. So he calls it, uh, this is Enzo Ferrari, the founder of Ferrari back in 1929. I think is when he started the company. But he said, the Ferrari yeah. is a dream. People dream of owning this special vehicle. And for most people, it will remain a dream apart from those lucky few. Yeah. So it doesn't, it doesn't scream mass market, like does it? You know, it doesn't scream we want to sell as many no. of these as possible. No. Um, yeah and it's back to that billionaire thing if you you just don't i'm sure they don't ask the price of anything you hit a point where if you've got hundreds of millions or indeed billions if you go in you want a ferrari you just choose the one you want and someone else will look after it you know it's just that's a complete price and sensitivity is where you want to be at 100 you're producing something and that makes it like completely not completely i won't say but very impervious to wider macro conditions because its customers are going to be the zero point zero zero one percent makes it a bit recession proof or at least like recession resistant and and then it ensures steady revenue and earnings growth irrelevant of the economic cycle at hand and and then because of the brand because of the scarcity it has huge pricing power obviously the exclusivity and the scarcity we talked about unreal margins 50 percent gross margins for a car company which is no joke uh return on capital i think is about 20 percent return on invested capital over the past five years um, so just a really, really strong business that is doing the luxury route as good as any of them right now. Um, yeah. yeah. The one asterisk I have for it, and this is going with a lot of luxury companies, is you're going to pay up. It's a premium valuation. Yeah. I think it's trading roughly 50 times earnings at the minute. Whichever way, you yeah. can look at that whichever way you like. It's still going to be an expensive stock. Um, yeah. What's interesting is that it's not that far off. It's five-year average. Uh, price to earnings is about 45 so like it's 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 able to maintain a premium valuation over long periods of time which is what a lot of quality business will be able to do so 
we talked about being kind of deterred by valuation and you mentioned the Ben Carson stuff. This would be a good example of, okay, well, if I'm holding it for long enough, it should be able to negate some of those kind of issues people would initially see. It's not, it's not for a value investor, which is probably apt because yeah. it's not. No, no. It's, it, well, there it's you go. It's, it's, item, it, it, but uh, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, so Mike, have you, have you ever been in a Ferrari? Have actually, would you believe that? Of course, I believe it. It's not that out, outlandish. No, well, I, thought, <laughs> I, thought, I don't know. I was like 15, I think, and um, oh, nice. there's a very rich man in Galway who kind of knew my dad, yeah. and I think he was into cars at the time. And he he was driving past or something, and he let me sit in the front seat and took off. I nearly flew can back I, into I the headrest. Are his initials D G? No. I don't know who that is. Okay, right. I won't say the name because I don't want to. But I, Ireland is so small and there's so few people who can afford Ferrari. I was going to take a wild guess about the, the richest lad I thought I knew in going. <laughs> but, you know, uh, the thing is, like, if you're, if you're, you know, rich or well-off, prosperous, have you ever been in a Ferrari? Yeah, of course. But I think the uber rich, if you say to them, have you ever been in a Ferrari? They go, I, I don't know. I don't like know. if you don't know, <laughs> yeah. you're you're truly at if that level. It wasn't level. momentous at all. Like, yeah, exactly. I, I was in a Ferrari. I was in something. <laughs> I've been in something for a few years. I was in the back of one. I was in the front of one. Uh, but I don't know. But anyway, so are you a buyer of Ferrari, a holder, or a seller? Yeah, I'd be green enough on it. Um, yeah, I am going to do a bit more research. So watch this space, uh, people. But yeah, Ferrari great business and doing luxury right i think is the the catchphrase i think you finish with tell me about it i wouldn't go anywhere without my <laughs> yeah. um right okay <laughs> so okay mike I'm, I'm getting a bit nervous now in the in the driver's seat what what do i say go into the phone or stuff what i meant to don't out? worry i'll take care of the promos graham you've done a great yeah. job um okay <laughs> but before before we finish up, just a thank you to our friends at Vodafone Business. Uh, if you're a business owner in need of a leg up when it comes to your digital transformation, get yourself over to Vodafone VHub to book your appointment today. Find the link in the show notes for more details. Emmett, thank you very much for joining and hosting for so much of the show. It was a real relief for me. And uh, thanks. Likewise, I think I like it, but I, I prefer not to be. It, it takes a, a certain level of skill to be a question asker. I'd rather just you hit me with the questions. I sit here throwing out random thoughts. <laughs> okay. Uh, thanks everyone for listening in. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at my Wall Street HQ, on TikTok at my Wall Street, or simply just email us at pod at mywallstreet.com. We will talk to you next week. And yeah, best of luck. Mm-hmm.